Well, welcome all. Happy Easter to you. Uh, we are not in a very exciting text this morning for Easter. Uh, we are making our way through one of the most, if not the most, depressing book in the Bible, uh, the book of Judges. And it's quite similar in many ways uh, to our current situation uh, in our culture as even the professed people of God fail to uh, honor God as they should. Well, we're looking together at Judges 10 this morning, verses 1 to 16. And just as a, a quick reminder, we're on the heels of Judges 9 and Abimelech, which was a story, a saga, we might say, of murder, folly, pride, and judgment. And we read last time of Abimelech butchering 70 of his brothers. We heard of Israelite leaders uh, seeming to judge that massacre, a mass massacre is a good leadership quality. So we're going to have that guy come and be our leader. And then we saw God's judgment on all these leaders because Abimelech took them and he burned them in fire. Uh, and then the Lord brought judgment on Abimelech. He had a woman from uh, you know, a tower essentially drop a millstone on Abimelech's head, cracked his skull, and he dies. Again, really exciting stuff. Uh, chapter 9 is depressing, but it ends in God's wrath because that's the state of the spiritual condition of Israel in this moment. They are a wayward people who deserve to be squashed. And that might be what we expect as we enter into Judges 10. Nothing's changed in the people. And we think, surely by this point, the Lord's mercy to this bunch has got to stop because look at them. And yet in our passage, we continue to see the long-suffering nature of the Lord, how His faithfulness endures forever. Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to read Judges 10. Gracious Father, we give thanks to You for the day that You have made, and You've crowned uh, this day with the resurrection of Your Son. And we praise You for that, that there's life in Christ. And Lord, as we approach You this morning in a dark section of Scripture, we pray that we would yet remember the light that shines in the Gospel of our beloved Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Give us help to understand Your Word, and we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you would follow along with me, Judges 10, 1-16, we read, After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havaloth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. 
And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Monites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Well, thus far, the word of God. And may he take this chilling and sad text and yet cheer our souls through it. All right, we're going to see three things as we try to march our way through this depressing scene. And we begin with something that's not depressing. We begin with a sign of God's compassion. Now look back up at verse 1 and note, after Abimelech there arose to save Israel. Note that word. To save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Now the only other information we get about Tola was his tenure as a judge. Uh, 23 years, and then of course the place of his burial, Shamir. What are we to learn from a guy about whom we know virtually nothing? Well, in this case, it's the reference to Abimelech that gives us a clue. Abimelech's reign, as I've already mentioned, was a disaster. A disaster. So unlike periods previously where a judge came and then they did their work and then Israel had a period of rest. Do you remember that refrain in the various judges? And the land had rest for so and so years. After the Abimelech debacle, there is no rest stated. In fact, we, and we begin to wonder, well, as this new judge arises, from what is he going to save us? Because notice also in verse 1, there's no mention of an attack from a foreign people, nothing about the Moabites or the Midianites. We simply read <clears throat> that there arose to save Israel Tola. Well, what's the threat? <clears throat> the threat clearly isn't from outside because no external force has been mentioned to come in to attack. So that begs a question, doesn't it? Where is the threat coming from? It's from within the people of God. There's an ongoing problem within Israel. Abimelech has led Israel into a state of what we might call in-house strife. And his reign demonstrated the vacuum of leadership in the land. This moves us into a void and confusion where the Lord takes pity on His people 
and raises up someone else. Tola is raised up to save Israel. To save her from herself, we might say. He's raised up by the Lord to give stability in a time of turmoil. And we have to see the stability as the gift of God. Israel doesn't deserve a season of stability. They don't deserve some form of political cohesion when they've made a mess of things. They just deserve more wrath. Don't forget, though, the terror of Abimelech just prior to this text. You remember after Gideon's death, Israel had gone right back to whoring after their various idols. Abimelech is thus viewed as a judgment on the people. You want, you want idolatry? Well, here's what you're going to get in your leaders if you go that direction. <clears throat> but now, Yahweh doesn't give Israel over to another Abimelech-type character and then leave her in the darkness. Instead, out of nothing but His compassion, He provides a Savior. And we should see a parallel here in connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. While we were walking in purity of life, conducting ourselves with ongoing godliness, and always demonstrating that we did what pleased the Lord, the Lord sent... No, that's not how it goes. While we were walking in darkness and had no light, the Lord brought a light to shine upon us. While we were enslaved to our lusts, hating and hating one another, Titus 3 will put it. A clear indication of the depth of our own strife. God, out of His compassion and His compassion alone, raised up a Savior for us. And He's better than Toa, of whom we know almost nothing. He raised up a Savior who is His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't leave us, that is, the Lord our God didn't leave us to wallow in our own chaos and darkness. That's what we deserve. Rather, He sent, he sent a Savior to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to set the prisoner free, to comfort those who mourn. And our Savior didn't just usher in a season of 23 years of peace, which is what Toa does here. What's Jesus' name with relation to peace? He's the Prince of Peace. He's a king who rules with equity and justice and gentleness and sympathy, who secures our souls forever. So we're, we're getting a glimpse in our text of the compassion of our God who doesn't allow the likes of Abimelech or Ahab or Herod or the devil to have the last word over His people. God's people may experience a horror of evil leadership for a season. Wicked men may afflict the church and darkness may have her hour, as Jesus will say at one striking point in the, gospel of John, in the Gospels, that this is the hour and the power of darkness. But as the prophet Micah reminds us, Yahweh does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Well, brother, may a sight of that, that God would be merciful to this miserable people, may it remind us of the great compassion of God, and may it fuel worship. May His kindness lead us into repentance. And may we see that He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. 
Well, the sign of Yahweh's compassion just continues as we go to the second minor judge in our text, a man named Jair. Now, Tola and Jair are termed minor judges because they don't get the biblical space that, say, Gideon or Samson receive. But to call them a minor judge is a little bit of a knock on them. They're not minor in the sense of bringing a minor salvation. They're just minor in that we don't know hardly anything about them. It's kind of the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets. The minor prophets aren't minor as though their words are less important. They're just less of the words that we have. So we call them the minor prophets. Maybe we should change the name. I don't think that's going to be effective. We've been calling them that for too long. But there's actually little difference in function between the so-called minor judges and the major ones. Each one of these people is a mercy of God. God is raising up a man to be His instrument of saving the people. So, who was Jair and what did he do? Well, again, the details are few. We know Jair was a Gileadite. We know that he judged Israel for 22 years. We know that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities called literally towns of Jair. But that's about all we know. So what's the significance here of 30 sons riding on 30 donkeys, ruling on 30 cities? What in the world do we do with this? Well, some argue this is just a hint of Israel's compromising tendencies once more. Because you don't get 30 sons without multiple wives, which is a constant snare to the people of Israel. Further, it's through the multiplying of sons through many wives that made the whole Abimelech fiasco possible in the previous chapter. And all this is true. And it may be that the Lord intends us to see this pattern of evil just continues even in the midst of His mercy. However, we just don't have enough information to be definitive about those type of claims. That's not what the text is telling us. That's reading in something that isn't there. What we do know is that the Lord raised up Jair to give Israel another 22 years of leadership. Now, that in and of itself is pretty striking. Because if we do the math, and I know it's early in the morning and we don't like math, but 23 plus 22, 45 years of prosperity and peace. That's what the Lord is giving His people. And while you might think, well, you know, having your sons, 30 of them, riding around the cities that are called by Daddy's name on their 30 donkeys, that's a little bit ostentatious. Maybe it's a sign of indulgence. But could it be that riding around just indicates the level of stability that is throughout the land? all the way back in Judges 5, when we were learning about how bad things were before God raised up Deborah and uh, Barak to lead uh, God's people into triumph over Sisera and his iron chariots, that no one could go anywhere because of the threat in the towns. Everybody had to stay at home because violence was everywhere. Well, here, that's not the case. The Lord has given a reprieve from that type of violence. Prosperity is such that folks can ride around. But the question becomes this, how do we respond to periods of prosperity and peace? Do we see them as a gift of God's grace? Are we moved by 
that kindness to do what is pleasing to the Lord? Or are we lulled to sleep, leading to a moral lethargy, going into immorality and ease because everything is easy for us? What's about to happen in Israel indicates that they responded to 45 years of prosperity and peace poorly. They didn't return thanks to God. What about us? One could argue that we're, we have less prosperity and peace at the moment than we've had at other times. That may be true, but we're in a pretty considerable season, all things considered, of prosperity and peace. And as tests come to us, the test of prosperity can be harder than the test of hardship. Go read the life of David. When did he fall into great sin? After he conquered all of his enemies. When he was, yes, his army's out, but he's at home. He doesn't feel the need to be with them. When does a test come for Solomon? Peace is reigning in the land. And he's sucked into immorality with foreign women. What about Hezekiah? The Lord gave him blessing and then left him to himself to expose the pride of his heart. Trouble is often a blessing to us because it squeezes us that we would cry out to God. But do we cry out to God when things are going well? Do we serve Him when the signs of His compassion are evident to us? Are we devoted to Him even when we're free of the grip of a trial pressing us hard? We have to be on our guard, watching our heart, that we don't look upon peace and prosperity and then be moved to a spiritual drift. It's the language of Hebrews 4 about let none of you drift away. We don't want to be the boat that has lost its moorings and is drifting out and is going to go to destruction. So, Yahweh's compassion is evident in these opening verses 1-5. to Well, let's secondly see a word of condemnation. A word of condemnation. Verses 6-14. to just as after every other judge, what does Israel do? They go right back to the slop of sin. Only this time, the plunge into idolatry is profound. Look at verse 6 and note how the author lists these seven different foreign gods to whom the Lord's people prostituted themselves. The Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. This is the most comprehensive statement of false worship in the entire book of Judges. Many have noted as they study Judges that Judges seems to be on a repeat cycle. They just keep circling back to the same old stuff. Yahweh delivers. They have a season of rest. They go right back to their false gods. They have another, another catastrophe as the Lord sends people to attack them. And then the Lord raises up a judge that they might be delivered. And this, this cycle is ongoing. But the cycle isn't like this. The cycle is like this. It's a downward degradation. Because Israel keeps forsaking the Lord, and they look no different from the pagans in the land. And it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And you're going to see as we keep reading the book of Judges, that the end of Judges is the most despicable section maybe of the whole Bible. And it's proving to you a point that they're getting worse and worse and worse. 
The trouble is, historically, the end of the book of the Judges might be happening earlier in the book, or earlier in the time frame. Because the, the purpose of the author is to show you this downward descent. So we'll, we'll deal with that issue when we get there. Though Jeremiah and his prophecy against God's people is hundreds of years away, what he has to say in Jeremiah 2 is quite striking and relevant here. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Though the Lord has abundant and constant supply of all the comfort and all the relief that the people could ever need, and He offers it freely, they keep denying Him. They will not rely upon God as their provider, and they will not acknowledge His kindness. Well, what about us? It's easy right here, isn't it, to blast Israel for their foolishness? To see how they run after other things and are satisfied in them? But what about our hearts? Are all our streams in the Lord? Or are we chasing fleshly satisfaction in all the ways it could be offered? Fleshly indulgence, money, ease. What's fulfilling us? Or have we found that Christ is indeed the fountain of living water to our soul? And in Him we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's so easy to be pulled by other things, as Israel always is. It's written for us to be warned. So let us be warned and take heed to our hearts. All right, so we've got this massive statement of idolatry. Well, what does the Lord do in light of the situation? Well, as we might expect, His anger burns. And verse 7, He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. The Lord won't play second fiddle. He is a jealous God. And He will give us over if we refuse to follow Him. So these evil nations, the Philistines and the Ammonites, verse 8, they come in and they literally shattered and crushed Israel. Violent words. It's actually one of the same words used of that woman dropping a stone on Abimelech's head and crushed it. That's the idea. Violence is taking place. And how long does this go on? Are you, are you noticing? What's the text saying? How long does it go on that this is happening? 18 years. That's a long time. In the whole scope of eternity, no, it's not long. But if you're living in a situation where you're being crushed and oppressed, 18 years is a long time. Initially, these two peoples are striking down, the Ammonites in particular, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. So if the Jordan River is here, these would be these northern area tribes over here around the Sea of Galilee and as the Jordan comes down, that little area. But then after 18 years, they move across the Jordan and begin attacking Judah to the south and Ephraim to the north. So now they're touching everybody, which tells you that idolatry isn't just located in one spot. It's all throughout the land. Apostasy is everywhere. And what do they do when the trouble comes? Verse 10, they cried out. We've seen that before. Only this time, there's an explicit acknowledgement of sin. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now it's good to hear Israel finally admit sin. 
However, an admission of guilt is not the same thing as repentance. Just because you admit that you spoke harshly to your wife, just because you admit that you hit your sibling, that doesn't mean you've actually turned from the wicked action. And it doesn't seem that the Lord is too impressed with their repentance, because it isn't repentance. So the Lord surveys what He's done for them. He gives a history lesson. Verse 11, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Manoites? They oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. I want you to notice what the author's doing. Seven different types of idols they've been seeking. The gods of seven different peoples. And now the Lord gives them a history lesson. And how many times does He say He saved them? Why don't you count this time? The Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Manoites. Okay, every time you run into these false gods, I keep coming to save you. Seven and seven. It's a sevenfold description of salvation. What's the Lord saying? I've saved you from all of your enemies. And He tells them, there's value in thinking on what God has done for you. I know we live in an age today where history is bunk. Nobody wants to hear about history. Nobody wants to study history. They don't want to think about what happened in the past because it doesn't matter. We live in the now and we're only concerned for the now. Well, the Lord is telling His people, you need to look back over the last 150 years and you need to read up to the present, and you need to see everything that I've done for you. There's a very important word in the Bible. It starts with R, and we hear it all the time. What is that word? Remember. Remember. That is a crucial biblical word. We hear it as we come to the table regularly. Remember. We have to remember. But God's people haven't remembered. In spite of His de repeated deliverances, the Lord brings an indictment. Verse 13. You've, this is a prosecuting attorney now pressing the issue. Yet, here's all I've done for you. Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Should make chills go up your spine. The Lord says, I'm not going to hear from you anymore. I'm not impressed by you. I will not be used by you. And your foxhole religion stinks. You can't drop in your tokens of repentance like I'm some vending machine in the sky and I'll just give you whatever you want. The Lord isn't just here that you would be secured in a little tight spot until you can go find something better to do. What the Lord requires, and this hasn't changed, is love and loyalty. And His salvation makes an even greater demand. The greater salvation, the greater the love and loyalty. What does that say to us this morning? We have the greatest salvation that could be, ever be given. What should it draw from our heart? The greatest expressions of love and loyalty to the Lord are God. So the Lord is confronting His people. Look, your pattern of sin, this dark plunge into iniquity, is placing you past the point of safety. You're past an experience of mercy. You're not going to have any helper. It's terrifying. Israel needs to wake up. 
And though these words were spoken some 3,000 or more years ago, don't think for a second this threat of condemnation has no relevance to us as the professing people of God in the New Covenant. We need to remember Paul's warnings to us as God's people against idolatry and immorality or any kind of fleshly indulgence. What's everybody's favorite chapter in the Bible? The the most famous, famous chapter in the Bible. Romans 8. In the middle of Romans 8, verse 13, hear this verse. If you live according to the flesh, you, ESV says will, it's literally must, you must die. It's a chilling warning in the middle of all that comfort. You live according to the flesh, you must die. Or Galatians 5, after Paul has listed the deeds of the flesh, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We could read Colossians 3, we could read Ephesians 5, or how about listen to Jesus' warning in Revelation 3 to Sardis. He says this church has a reputation of being alive. They profess faith that they live in Christ, but the truth is they're spiritually languishing. And Jesus says... Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, what Christ requires of His people is love and loyalty. It's a life of allegiance to Him. We can't dabble in wickedness and think God will pardon us because that's just what God does. No, a presumptuous people will meet a righteous judge. The Lord will keep His promise to condemn those who don't love Him. This text, this whole passage is a warning to us. See what Israel has done and don't repeat it. Don't find yourself in this spot. Wake up! And then thirdly, now we see the God who cares. We wrap up with this verses 15 and 16. So, after the Lord has told His people, go hitch your wagon to your helpless gods. Let them save you. They say, verse 15, we have sinned. Do whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then verse 16, they put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. Now many read this text and they think, okay, Israel wasn't repentant in verse 10, but now they are in verse 15. Look at their submission. They say, we are at the Lord's disposal. And then they actually put away the false gods. Look, they're turning. So, verse 16, the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. That is, He turned from His wrath. Not so fast. First, Israel's submission... It's not as neat as it might appear. Yes, they say to the Lord, do to us whatever seems good to you. But notice that's linked to a demand. What's the demand say? Deliver us when? Today. Now. Do it now. Well, we'll say whatever you want us to say and we'll do whatever you tell us to do. Just rescue us right now. Any of you parents ever had a child? I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just please don't do what you're about to do to me. 
On top of that, the clear implication of the kind of the litany of the Lord's deliverances indicates that after every time He saved them, what did they do? They went right back to the slop of their sin. They went right back to their foreign gods. So Israel's pattern hasn't just been to pursue idols. They pursue idols, they get in trouble, they come back to the Lord, they lay aside their gods for a little bit, they serve the Lord, but then the trouble goes away, and then they lay aside Yahweh, and they run after other gods. In verse 16, we, we have, as Ralph Davis puts it, same song, 16th verse. Yes, it's true, Israel seems repentant, but I think they're just doing what they've always done. Finally, the compassion of the Lord in verse 16 has no connection to Israel's repentance. The text doesn't tell us that Yahweh relented of this disaster. We don't find what we read in Jonah chapter 3, for instance. You remember Jonah? He travels through the, after the fish episode, travels through the city of Nineveh. He preaches, yet 40 days, and the Lord will destroy this place. But then the king calls a fast. Fast, they exhorted prayer. There's a turning away from evil, and the Lord sees how they turned, and He relents from the disaster He was going to send. We don't read any of that in our text. It's not Israel's repentance that moves the Lord. Look at the language of verse 16. We just read, He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Or another translation to capture the intent. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. This little phrase is a staggering display of the heart of our God. While Israel is reaping the fruit of their own sin and blind to the true depth of her own depravity, not having a broken and contrite spirit, the Lord is still moved with compassion. He's not sorry that He afflicted them. The punishment was appropriate. But He's sorry over them in view of their misery. What does this tell us about the Lord? That He cares for His people. He's not some distant deity who doesn't pity His people in their distress. In all of their affliction, He's afflicted. Or we could put it this way, and I'm using emotive terms, and I'm not going to untie the theological knot it creates. But it hurts Yahweh's heart to look upon the misery of the people. Yes, He must give them over to the folly of their sin at times and show them the horror of their rebellion. But even in the punishment, the Lord's compassions are stirred. That's really the heart of the book of Judges all the way back to chapter 2. They ran after other gods. God gave them into the hand of their enemies. And then what does He do? God raises up a judge to save them out of the enemies into which He gave them. Why does He do that? Because He's a God of grace. And while He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, He's a God who doesn't forget His own steadfast love. Now there's a tension there. How can God pity them and do anything for them when their guilt warrants destruction? That's a tension that can only be resolved in Christ. Where God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because 
the Son of God has been put forth as a propitiation. He will be judged that we could be set free. But the Lord is showing us His nature. That while for a brief moment He may forsake them, with great compassion He will gather them. This is what our God is like. And it's all the more remarkable to see His character like this when we remember what God did for us. He didn't spare His own Son. But He, without sparing Him, delivered Him up unto that horrible, curse-filled death. Upon Jesus comes the wrath that we all warrant. He takes our curse. He bears our sin. He's crushed for our iniquities. But who gave Jesus to be crushed like that? It was the Father. A lot of people have a misunderstanding of what it is Jesus does as He comes. They think sometimes that Jesus is coming to twist the arm of the Father to like us. But it was the love of the Father that motivated the atonement. It's the love of the Father that gave the Son. The Lord takes pity over the misery of His people, even when the misery is of our own making. And that compassion from God should stir our affections. You may be a wretched sinner, but guess what? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even if you're the foremost. So let us stand back from what is still a really depressing chapter. Look at God's people. And yet let us see the God of that people who will not let them go. You remember that wonderful song, hymn by George Matheson, O love that will not let me go. Praise God for love that will not let us go. Let me pray for us. Lord our God, we marvel at Your ways We see the depth of Your compassion and it's only heightened as You give Christ for our salvation. Lord, we are so much like Israel of old. We cry out for deliverance and You bring it and then we forget You. And then we cry out again and You deliver us and we forget You. Forgive us for our patterns of unbelief, our idols, our indulgences of all manner of sin. But Lord, as we eye your wondrous mercy. Lord, would you move us with your kindness to repentance and would you cause our hearts to give you the love and loyalty to which we owe. Lord, you are do these things. Lord, help us to be obligated to love you and to delight in loving you. Hear us as we cry out to you, O Lord, and prepare us to enter your courts with praise this morning. For we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.